0: This week, The Spectator will surpass the 100,000 subscribers mark for the first time in its long history. Subscribe today and you could be our 100,000 subscriber. If you are, you'll win a prize worth £5,000, including a year's supply of Paul Roger champagne and tickets to our famous summer party covid guidelines allowing but also send all new subscribers this week a commemorative tote bag subscribe today and you can get your first month free at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash milestone
1: hello and welcome to the spectators book club podcast I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined by the philosopher Toby Ord, whose book, just out in paperback now, is The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity, a cheering subject. Toby, can you start by saying what you mean by the precipice? What's that term describing?
2: Sure. Fundamentally, this is a book about humanity, and about humanity over deep time. Uh, the 10,000 generations who've come before us, uh, the tens of thousands or more are generations who might come after us, and about how we live at a really critical moment right now that could shape that entire future. So over all of these generations that came before us, we've been subject to natural risks, uh, which could cause you know, famine or pestilence and could cause uh, great problems for the people at those times. But there was also a chance that we could suffer... Catastrophes so great that they could lead to our extinction, as, for example, the dinosaurs went extinct before us, and 99.9% of all species that have ever existed are now extinct. So there, there was this possibility of risks that could cut off our entire story and mean that none of uh, you know, what we see today uh, would have ever happened, or that none of perhaps our future would happen if, if these happened today. And these natural risks have always been with us, but starting in the 20th century with the development of nuclear weapons, our escalating power over the world around us finally reached this point where we held our own fate in our hands and where we could subject ourselves to a potential catastrophe, a nuclear war and nuclear winter, that could cut off our entire future and that this risk was much greater than the natural risks that had come before us. And so now we stand at this this pivotal moment where we see... Will we end up destroying ourselves or will we kind of achieve the wisdom that we need in order to control our powers?
1: And you date the precipice quite narrowly, don't you? You're, you're like, this is not an Anthropocene. It's not a long period of time as you see it.
2: Yeah, that, that's a good question. So th- the Anthropocene is an attempt at a new, you know, defining a new geological era, which, you know, one would expect to be quite a long time, something like tens or hundreds of thousands of years. What I'm talking about is more like something like, say, the Enlightenment or you know, the Renaissance, a time period like that, lasting perhaps a few centuries. And I date it to the Trinity test in 1945, you know, which we know down to the second when it happened. This first moment where we we really kind of gained these transformative powers. Although I think nuclear weapons were just the first such risk that we've exposed ourselves to. I think climate change is the second one and that there will be more to come over this century, and that these risks are are escalating. My best guess as to the amount of risk, you know, that the chance that we don't make it through this century is about one in six. If I'm even roughly right about that, then this would be an unsustainable level of risk. We couldn't go through many centuries with risk like that, and thus, one way or another, either through failure or through getting our act together and securing our future, this period can't last all that long. So I think it's a singular time in, in humanity's story.
1: I One mean, of the points of the book is it's hard to think about these sort of long-term things urgently. What was it that made you start thinking about it urgently and think, actually, now is the crunch?
2: Yeah, I would say that there wasn't a particularly sharp moment. But when I first came to Oxford from Australia to study philosophy... I met a a man who's now a colleague, uh, Nick Bostrom, and he'd been looking at this idea of existential risk, which includes the risk of human extinction or other things that could permanently curtail our future potential, such as a collapse of civilization so deep that we could never recover. And I thought this was very interesting, uh, but that it was somehow a bit outlandish and that it seemed kind of less Pressing and less urgent than other concerns. And so actually, you know, I then spent the next uh, 10 years after after meeting Nick focusing mainly on global poverty and what we could do about that. But over time, you know, it was always in my mind, uh, this idea of this risk to humanity as a whole, as this is this other really interesting area that, could, you know, on the face of it sounded as important or even more important than this other massive world issue. But yeah, then after a while, I, I just gradually, I guess realized that, surprisingly, while global poverty is a very neglected issue, if you look at the money uh, that we actually spend on it, that protecting humanity's future is uh, even more neglected. And also that while in some sense we're talking about, you know, generations, many generations to come, in some sense it's even more urgent because it's something where the risks that could happen on our watch... You know, only we, only our generation can actually do anything about them. Even though the consequences would echo through the ages, there is this this urgency because the pivotal time to act is now. Eventually, it kind of overcame my scepticism of, of this as a issue of our time.
1: It's quite striking that in the early part of the book, you spend a lot of time you know, making the case for why we need to worry about existential risk and why it's important to save Humanity's future is that the sort of academic philosopher in you coming out and starting first principles, or, or is it? I mean, because for a lot of people who say, "Oh, well, it's even obvious, isn't it?" But why do you feel the need to make that case in detail?
2: Well, I think it's it's interesting. Um, y- you're right. I've got a degree in science as well, but my my trade is as a as a philosopher and a moral philosopher in particular. And in fact, my colleagues in moral philosophy were quite surprised that so much of the book was not about the moral philosophy of the the risk of extinction, but was instead about the science of this, and also about the economics and uh, and the international relations and, and so forth. It's you know it really does cover a lot of different disciplinary approaches, but. I find that that yeah people often either have a reaction that yes you know obviously this would be one of the worst things that could happen uh you don't need to labor the point or they have the reaction that possibly in a kind of churlish way or something to say oh well you know maybe the world would be better off without us or something like that And then often to just double down on that in conversation if you push them on it. So, you know, half the people think it's obviously one of the worst things that could happen. The other half think not bad at all. And so I wanted to actually get into it a little bit, take it seriously, because it's it's often the subject of either kind of somewhat titillating top 10 ways the world could be destroyed lists on the Internet, where the idea is to, you know, is to create some exciting feelings about explosions and so on. Or it's the subject of, you know, comic books and things. Or, you know, it's the classic thing where if an author needs to kind of ramp up the stakes of a of a story, then they make, you know, the whole world is at stake. And so it's often given a very juvenile treatment. Um, and so I wanted to instead help people think seriously about it. I divided it up into the fact that, if we did suffer one of these existential catastrophes, there would be the losses for the present generation. So the the deaths uh, of everyone alive today, if it was extinction, or at least the you know living in a collapsed civilization. You know, the, after the collapse of civilization, then also, and and what moves me most, the loss of our entire future, and everything that we could have become over over deep time, and everything we could achieve. But then also, there's in some sense a betrayal of our past and uh, this this idea uh, of a partnership of generations you know that everything we have in our technological world around us, and with even even before some of the advanced technology, all of these institutions uh, that we have and living in a you know modern democracy was only possible because of because of this progress over ten thousand generations of of iterating and improving all of these ideas and building up these institutions and things and so we would be the first in this chain of generations to, you know, break this partnership and drop the baton. Uh, and then I look at other reasons as well, and I, I try to pull all of this together and and give a kind of richer sense of why it's not just on one kind of narrow view of the world that this would be, um, you know, a truly terrible thing and an urgent priority. But actually, there's a lot of different sources for this, depending on you know all different kinds of ways you think about uh, value in the world.
1: Yeah, This business of weighing the value of. Generations yet to be born against already living humans it seems to me a sort of interesting pivot in kind of morally i mean it struck me it might generalize to the the arguments about abortion you know which which say on the sort of liberal pro pro choice end of things, my life now is more important than the potential life of my child my you know um do do you think that does have implications or am i am I misunderstanding that?
2: I think that there there are some connections uh, between the two. There there are a lot of people in in ethics who look at the, the ethics of abortion, although actually surprisingly little of it is connected to this other part of ethics, about the ethics of future generations. And uh, I certainly am no expert in in the ethics of abortion, so uh, you know, d- don't really want to weigh in on uh, how how no, all these a side things issue weigh together.
1: You seem to
2: yeah, it, it's there's uh, you know, th- there will indeed be some relations, I, I, but I think there are also a lot of extra complexities in that case.
1: Right. You, there is a, a handful which makes it you know helps to ground it very well of sort of human stories you've got in here about our near misses, for instance. The name of Vasily Arkhipov was new to me. Can you talk about Vasily Arkhipov? Because he seems possibly to have saved humanity.
2: Yes. This was during the, the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis um, in the 1960s when the, the Soviets had been installing uh, nuclear missiles in Cuba and uh, leading to this, this extreme tension and, and crisis because they were close enough that they could be directly launched against the mainland U.S., and uh the kennedy administration had responded quite forthrightly and had said that if there was any use of these nuclear weapons then there would the response would be full scale nuclear war and uh there was a a naval blockade around cuba and uh some of the the ships found some submarines lurking around uh and they weren't aware that these submarines were armed with nuclear torpedoes which could destroy the you know the entire group of of warships uh, that were that were tracking them. Uh, and so they started dropping these uh, uh, so-called practice depth charges on the submarines to try to force them to surface. And uh, one of those submarines, th- things got very tense. It was extremely hot. People were passing out from the heat. Uh, they hadn't been built for tropical climates. And uh, it was, you know, they were going to have to surf- surface soon as as it was not survivable down there for long. And uh, the captain decided to launch the nuclear torpedo and he thought that World War Three might have already started and that they needed to uh, to respond to these depth charges. And the political officer agreed. And on any of the, the other submarines in this flotilla, um, that would have sufficed. But luckily, uh, the flotilla commander hap- happened to be stationed on this one, Vasily Arkhipov. And he disagreed. And he overruled the the captain and talked him down from his rage. And they decided not to use the nuclear torpedo. Uh, But if they had, uh, it would have immediately wiped out uh, this group of warships. And uh, presumably, at least if uh, Kennedy had kept his word, then would have escalated immediately to full-scale nuclear war.
1: Which is lucky for all of us. Uh, Indeed. This is a book that doesn't just make the moral case and the sort of generalised case. I mean, what seems to me interesting is that you're interested in trying to quantify, however vaguely, the different risks we face and how they overlap and the sorts of timescales. Now, how do you go about that? Because a lot of the time these are, you know, by definition, you know, what Nassim Taleb calls black swan events, that you can't treat them like the sort of risk we're used to, where... You go well. This has happened once every hundred years, or two hundred years, or thousand years. They're things that have never happened before. How do you put numbers on those?
2: Well, uh, thanks. Uh, this is a really good question, and uh, the way you framed it, I think, is is exactly right. So, one useful thing to say is that when it comes to the the natural risks, such as uh, the risks that we were to go extinct in an you know, a large asteroid impact and the asteroid winter that would follow that as the, as dust, you know, filled the upper atmosphere and blocked out the sun. We can say something about that because we have a record of major asteroid impacts. And the same is true for some of the other natural risks too. We know less about these supervolcanic volcanic eruptions uh, that, you know, these volcanoes like Yellowstone that don't have these towering cones but have these calderas, you know, sunken beneath the Earth and that could emit so much uh, magma that it could um, transform the entire Earth's climate. But we do know something about them, and and more than one has happened, and so we can start to get statistics on it. And even more helpfully, we can use the fact that humanity has survived for 200,000 years so far, 2,000 centuries. So if someone said, I think that the natural risk um, over the next century is 1%, you could say, well, if it's 1%, how could we have survived 2,000 of these centuries? It doesn't seem to make sense. You can basically rule that out. And so you can use these kinds of ideas or the, the typical species lifespan of about a million years to, to show that the, you know, the risk of going extinct in any particular year must be something like one in a million. It can't be too far away from that, uh, from these natural causes.
1: This is very good news for Bruce Willis. I mean, asteroid impacts <laughs> just... We don't need to worry about them so much.
2: Well, yes. Uh, I mean, and that's, that's partly because NASA's done such a good job of tracking them as well. And they've found that of all the ones they've tracked, none are on a collision course. So we really do know that that risk is quite low. In, in the book, I put it at about one in a million per century. So quite low, really, um, and l- much lower than, in fact, even most other natural risks. And if you think about the fact that the last mass extinction from the asteroid impact was indeed 65 million years ago, you know, that would suggest it's about the right, the right ballpark. But these are things that have happened before and potentially have happened many times, and so we can build up a statistical record as we can with say the the chance of dying in a car crash. but other things like nuclear war, we've had less than one century of uh, of track record. And the fact that we've had no nuclear wars but have had a number of near misses in seventy five years doesn't bode that well you know for what is the chance of a nuclear war per century, but it's you know it's hard to actually draw out statistics from this and so I try in the book, I I could have just left it there and said, so I can't say anything about any of these other things that haven't happened yet. But we know that there are things that haven't happened yet that you can still say something about, about the likelihood, right? We do it intuitively and we often shy away from using numbers. You could say, you know, what's the chance that, uh, let's say, some kind of new institution or new company that's founded uh, has some kind of, creates some new product of a certain type that you've never seen before. Uh, and you, you do have some intuitions about this, you know, some things, because that's almost impossible that's going to happen. You know, what's the chance that a cure for cancer is, uh, you know, developed in the next uh, 10 minutes or something? So, you know, it's, it's very low. And so we do have intuitions about them, but we can't produce the same kind of objective set of evidence and statistical methods. So what I try to do is I could have said for some of them that I think it's, you know, this one's more likely than this one or that this one is a grave risk, but still not too high or something like that. But then a lot of readers would have, you know, very different ideas about what I'm saying. And I already only have, you know, a certain amount of information about this. And then to immediately have one reader come out thinking I'm saying about 50% chance and another one thinking I'm saying about a 1% chance, you know, dilutes and confuses whatever information I had. Uh, So what I tried to do instead, and what I think people should generally do, is to put numbers on things, but to be rough numbers. Um, so for nuclear war, the chance of an existential catastrophe from nuclear war in the next hundred years, I put it about one in a thousand. But I mean that to be a very ballpark estimate. I, I'm trying to say, I don't think it's one in 10,000, and I don't think it's one in a hundred. Um, I think it's you know somewhere in between those. So something like within a factor of 10 or something kind of estimate. And yeah, but I, I think that some other things are really substantially more likely. so my my estimate for engineered pandemics over the next century is one in 30. you know so that that helps to see whether i'm saying i really do think it is much more likely uh, than the risk from nuclear war, which is largely because it looks very hard for a nuclear war to actually do us all in. And so I I encourage other people as well to, in general, when you're talking about the future, to put numbers on things. There is a tradition of doing this that is, you know, developing with Bayesian statistics. But, you know, they're they're certainly not meant to be the be-all and end-all. It's just a a way of expressing my own beliefs about this as someone who's looked into it for many years rather than as something where I'm saying, you know, because I put a number on it, it's very scientific and you have to use my number as well. Yeah, talking about engineered
1: pandemics this book obviously was written before a real non-engineered pandemic or unless you're you're one of those conspiracy Mm -hmm. theorists who believe it was engineered did that uh, did did that sort of alter the way you looked at, at the things you wrote about in the book when suddenly this pandemic showed up or did it sort of roughly factor into your your existing thinking
2: yeah, it's it's an interesting experience <laughs> writing a book about all of these global catastrophes and then having some, you know, some kind of scale of global catastrophe happen just as it was being published. Certainly no author, you know, wants their book to be published at a point where all the bookshops are closed. But ultimately, yeah, there, there was something, that, I wasn't that surprised that we had a pandemic at this scale. It's 100 years since uh, the 1918 uh, flu uh, and that one, the estimates vary, but it's, but the suggestion is that it killed about one in thirty people in the whole world. At the moment, it looks like uh, the current pandemic might might kill about one in a thousand people in the world, which is you know terrible. But it is interesting to see that just a hundred years ago there was something that that was maybe thirty times worse. Therefore. This is a kind of on the scale of something like a once-in-a-century event, and, and these things just do happen. Um, and, you know, a number of people were suggesting the risks, and it, it kind of wasn't out of the ordinary compared to what serious people were, were worried about, grave though it is. But there, there was something strange about seeing, seeing these kind of, you know, the, the numbers and so on, and, and this kind of numerical, rational understanding of it turn into something that's actually happening and I think that that will also be relevant to policymakers who have been presented by experts on uh, pandemics with these types of figures in the past and have perhaps shrugged it off a little bit, um, that I guess those figures do look quite serious and I guess we should be doing more. But, you know, this would be this would be the biggest event if it happened, you know, since at least World War Two. you know, maybe, you know, and they just kind of can't really believe it, it in some visceral way that it's going to happen. And so I think that this has helped us just remind us that indeed um, things that haven't occurred in your life and are bigger than anything that you've witnessed indeed can happen and do happen.
1: Well, among the book's kind of marmalade droppers is that you, as you say, the idea of an engineered pandemic, i.e. from a bioweapon or terrorism or whatever, you know, some some anthropogenic illness. You say the current global spending on, you know, the sort of anti-biohazard, unit i can't remember what it's called
2: yeah the the bioweapons convention the bioweapons
1: convention is less than the average branch of mcdonald's
2: yeah unfortunately that that is right it is it is grossly underfunded and it's also a bit challenging it's not just something where if the uk wanted to to fund it or if you know some philanthropist wanted to that they could just make that happen because it's it's funded by an international treaty you you do need to get some kind of agreement to jointly fund it i think but it's uh it's you know far inferior in in terms of its capabilities because of this this funding issue uh compared to the um the nuclear weapons convention uh, which is you know meant to be its kind of sibling uh treaty and often people say oh well we've got this bioweapons convention so you know we don't really need to worry about that but yeah uh, you know as as we say it it is has very little funding or capacity uh, in terms of enforcement or inspections or anything else like that. And also, we know that it's been breached. We know that uh, the Soviet Union uh, uh, breached it. Uh, they were developing bioweapons after signing this convention and, uh, in fact, had several escapes of pathogens they were working on. That's the one of the main reasons that we can confirm that they were indeed in breach of it. Uh, they accidentally released smallpox and they accidentally sprayed anthrax out over one of their cities uh, one night uh, and... Killed a number of people, so uh, you know this is a it's a very serious issue, and uh, there there are you know many known breaches, and yet uh, not that much is is done about it. Sadly,
1: but that's not even the number one thing that. Well, I don't know whether it keeps you awake at night, but of your list of mm-hmm. things you think that could wipe us out, and I think you you know you put you put a, a pretty frightening number on the engineered pandemic. But it's AI, isn't it, that's really making you anxious?
2: Yeah. Although, you know, as, as I say, all of these numbers are pretty hazy. So I, my my best guess on AI is something like a one in 10 chance that humanity, you know, fails in this century because of a development uh, in AI. But that is about, you know, my, my estimate is about three times higher than that of, from pandemics. And that's that's within the kind of factor where where I, you know, admit I could easily be wrong. And what I'm thinking here, it, it's, I think that the most useful way to look at it is uh, to divide it into a question of what's the chance that AI that can do everything that a human can do is developed uh, this century. So I'm not talking here about a very narrow system that excels at a particular game, but rather uh, the, the original dream of, of AI of a general intelligence that is like an agent in the world that can can choose pathways of actions that will maximize its objectives, and this uh, th- there have been great progress towards this uh, recently, partly through generalized game playing agents, you know that can play a huge variety of games, and there was a big survey done among uh, experts on AI uh, recently, a couple of years back, and the the experts you know, have very different estimates for when they thought we would reach a system uh, that could do everything that uh, that humans can do. But they, the, the median estimate, so the typical estimate, was that there was at least a 50% chance of that happening this century. And so if we take that estimate, um, and, and I should say the general public gives similar estimates as well. So if we take that kind of estimate of a 50% chance that it could happen this century, and then we ask, will... Will humanity continue to flourish beyond that point? And uh, I think we probably will. But here's the kind of counterpoint. If we ask why is it that humanity is in this position of having a potentially very bright future ahead of it, where we are in control of our own destiny in a way that chimpanzees are not, you know, humans are in control of the destiny of chimpanzees. Why is it that, that we've got this position of, uh, of power and, uh, and control over our future? And the answer is ultimately because of our cognitive abilities, you know, what we do with our brains. And if we're developing systems that will beat us at this one way in which we are unique, and that they will kind of take on this mantle of being the most intelligent entities on the earth, we might wonder why it is that it would still be be us who have this uh, this control of our of our future, or if instead we'd end up subservient uh, to the AI systems, and you know whether we survive, you know maybe like like the ants still survive today, and the chimpanzees still survive, but at the mercy of these systems, where our potential is perhaps very much limited by them. And uh, you know my my guess there is that we probably will uh, survive that transition if it happens. But, you know, but, but I'd say something like an 80% chance that we survive it, and a 20% chance that we don't. Something in that ballpark, and that would give you a 1 in 10 figure. And this is something where the, the experts on AI are concerned. Uh, well, many of them are concerned about how we could control these AI systems and make sure that, that they're aligned with human values and that, uh, that either we have the ability to always re- remain in control of them or that, uh, that they have the same goals as us. So in building you know, their ultimate world, they also build ours. But that's something where there's a lot of concern among those experts, and, uh, and it's not clear that they'll be able to develop that level of control over the motivations of AI systems before we develop the capabilities of those systems uh, to a level that could be dangerous.
1: What a, a, a sort of theme of the book seems to be essentially, you know, the, the precipice is happening because of these possible anthropogenic disasters and you say you know our technologies are outpacing our wisdom you know one of the cliches has it that we have you know stone age brains early modern institutions and space age technology is that that your diagnosis roughly and is there sort of anything that can be done about that mismatch i mean can, can we really expect to press pause on technology while we wait for our wisdom to catch up
2: well, that is so. That is pretty much my diagnosis: that uh, that our accelerating power is what has got us into this situation, particularly our technological power, and that you know this exponential acceleration uh, happening over many centuries, in a sense, cent- where in contrast our ability, uh, our what I call humanity's wisdom, which is a function of. The wisdom of each of us, but also our institutions managing to actually produce outcomes that that we value and to avoid outcomes that we all disvalue. That that has you know grown only falteringly uh, over over the last few centuries. Um, I think that it generally has got better. You know, by and large, if you look century to century, um, you'll find that uh, humanity's wisdom has has increased. But by you know, it's no match for the growth in our power. And I think that that. We're ultimately struck here with a challenge if we continue to let our technology grow unabated without these increases in our wisdom or our ability to to control these downside risks then i I don't think we have you know many centuries to come just a, just a couple probably but i'm a I'm a bit of an optimist about our ability to actually get these things under control and uh, I mentioned in the, in the book that uh, while it's difficult to estimate exactly how much of how much money is spent dealing with existential risk, because there's you know things like climate change, a lot of money is spent on energy and clean energy, but it's not clear whether to count you know every time I turn on a, um, a solar powered device whether to count that as as money that's spent you know fighting existential risk or not. But pretty much any way you account for our spending, it's safe to say that our spending on existential risk is less than we spend on ice cream uh, as a species and uh, i think that that's you know a useful comparative point that however much it's not clear exactly how much we should be spending on this but it's clear that our priorities are not not in order and that we could spend substantially more uh, and i would uh, you know what i suggest in the book is that we increase our spending until it at least exceeds this this point about the ice cream and then we see where we are uh, and also that we we're going to need to develop international institutions which try to do horizon scanning on these particular technologies that could lead to these risks and to try to work out ways in advance uh, to deal with them. But I don't think that that means you know, stopping technological progress or something like that. I think it just means uh, doing it in a more responsible way.
1: A thing that's slightly anxious-making in the book, well, in quite an anxious-making book, is what you call the unilateralist curse, which, if I understand it right, seems to suggest that all it requires is one little hole in the net with certain, certain things, i.e. you just need one crazy person or one over-ambitious person to take a technology fu- further on for it to have a potentially devastating effect. Is that, is that right? Can you explain what the unilateralist curse means?
2: Yeah. So there are a number of situations where any one of a group of agents could make something happen. So as an, let's take as an example um, geoengineering uh, to try to prevent climate change. That's something where each particular geoengineering technology has some associated risks, you know, to do with it being an unprecedented intervention in the, the Earth climate system. And suppose different countries are all evaluating what those risks are and whether the risks exceed the benefits. And it's very hard to do that, but we'll have our own estimates and uh, um, and we can, we can try. Uh, but Among those estimates, one of them will be the most optimistic. It will kind of either overestimate the benefits or it will underestimate the costs. And then that country, um, if they're all doing it independently, would go ahead with it. So that's a situation that is a unilateralist curse. If it's the type of engineering technology that if one country were to do it, that would make a big difference. It's it's related to the winner's curse in auctions, where everyone kind of has their own estimate of how much a property or something is worth, and then the one who overestimates most grossly is the one who ends up buying it, and then they they regret it. Uh, And one way you can deal with that, if people are aware of it, is for the countries to form a, a treaty of some sort to say that because of these problems of unilateralism, what we'll do is we'll all do our own independent estimates, and then we'll have a vote, and we will only proceed effectively if the median estimate uh, says it was worth doing, which is what a majoritarian outcome w- would give you. So that's an example of how diligent conscientious agents can deal with the unilateralist curse. But there are other possibilities, such as, uh, say, making of viruses as we uh, we're in this kind of period at the moment where biotechnology is expanding and developing very quickly. Um, There are these very impressive Moore's law of uh, uh, the cost of synthesizing and sequencing DNA coming down so dramatically over time. And more and more people being able to do any given thing in biotechnology. Interestingly, uh, if we look at the use of CRISPR to do gene editing, or we look at uh, gene drives uh, to release and uh, propagate a gene in the wild, these are amazing developments, possibly Nobel Prize-worthy developments. And, and yet, uh, you know, in the years they were invented, only one team in the world could do this. And then in both cases, within two years, the winners of uh, the iGEM, well, maybe not winners, but teams in the iGEM science competition uh, made of students Uh, were able to use those techniques. So just two years from, you know, the best team in the world through to uh, student teams being able to do these things. It's a massive democratization of this technology. But as this circle of people who can use it gets broader and broader, eventually it's going to include uh, people who either through some kind of uh, mental illness or dangerous ideology or maybe just through a a bad estimate about whether the benefits of doing something will outweigh the risks, that someone will actually take matters into their own hands and release some kinds of organisms uh, that could cause uh, immense damages.
1: Well, that leads us to a a sort of pivot. You talk about information pandemics and about the danger of this wide access of information. Now, sort of two of the foundational principles of the Enlightenment, which have got us to where we are now, are free speech and the free exchange or widest possible exchange of scientific information. An implication of your argument here seems to be that actually for our own planetary safety, we might need to roll back in some way on one or both of those things. Is
2: that right? I think so. Um, l- l- let me clarify. In, uh, in the 19, late 1930s, um, you know, 1939, well, atomic uh, fission was discovered. And very quickly, people realized that it could potentially lead to a weapon. And, you know, programs to develop such weapon were, were started immediately in Germany and, uh, and shortly thereafter uh, in the United States and in Britain. And, you know, there was a kind of race to develop nuclear weapons. And there were interesting conversations about whether, in the U.S., about whether they should keep publishing, you know, the new results in atomic theory. And as an example, a paper that showed that uh, th- that was talking about the creation of a new element, uh, neptunium, did get published. And then I think the paper that was a development of that, that how to create instead of neptunium to add one more proton and get uh, plutonium, I think that one actually was suppressed. But they'd, they'd accidentally showed how to create the thing that was just you know, the precursor to this incredibly dangerous substance that was part of the, um, the plutonium bomb. And so there were interesting discussions about this, and, and Niels Bohr was brought into them. And he, it, was, it was a great kind of tragedy and dilemma for him because he had spent his whole career and kind of risen to this kind of extreme prominence uh, in the world with this idea of open science and, uh, and international collaboration on these things. But then this idea that actually now it has switched around into a situation where open science about this could lead to uh, you know, nuclear war or perhaps uh, the empowerment of the Nazi regime... Uh, to get nuclear weapons and hold the world to nuclear blackmail. And, you know, there's a big tension that I think he never really resolved. But in terms of the physics community and those people who are working, say, on developing nuclear reactors or on purifying nuclear fissile materials, they did realize ultimately pretty quickly that this was something that they weren't just going to be able to talk about whenever they wanted that it was something very important and serious And it was kind of easy to see that When there was the possibility of creating this bomb Although the bomb was still hypothetical And, and you know, was six years away um, So it was still somewhat hard to see And ultimately, to, you know, to this day uh, There is a certain amount of uh, confidentiality And uh, and being tight-lipped in that community In the academy And they don't seem to be railing against it constantly And saying that they're being censored and, uh, and oppressed about this And... My thinking is that at least some component of the biotechnology community may end up having to kind of transform in this kind of way, where by default, uh, various new inventions that would have kind of radical consequences, they, you know, that they can't just all be kind of immediately published, there at least has to be some kind of internal committees that work out whether they can be published and, and how to proceed with them in the same way as happens in nuclear sciences. Um, so that's that's kind of my thinking on this. Not that there's some kind of radical about-face where all of a sudden the academy is about hoarding knowledge instead of disseminating it, but where we've seen in the past that that the academy can survive having some of its subgroups be more cautious about this and that that may have to happen more in the future.
1: The question obviously arises, though, you know, Chris Custodiat, what institution would you feel, you know, as a moral philosopher, comfortable putting in charge of deciding what information is available to everybody and what information isn't?
2: Well, if it was, uh, <laughs> that sounds like a very broad remit. If it was particularly on, um, let, let's say it was the the type of thing I'd be in favour of is if it was particularly on, uh, say, the matter of biotechnology. But even then, uh, I'm not sure. And I don't know that many details about how this is actually done uh, when it comes to nuclear sciences. And so what I would suggest is that we, we see how it was done there. It seems to have been okay. It doesn't seem to have led to a massive revolt of the scientists. And are there ways of having a similar level of caution you know, within biotechnology? Uh, but I, I'm not imagining a kind of centralized world authority that, that deems what, what information is uh, too dangerous. Uh, and when I talk in the, in the book about information hazards, how in some cases a particular piece of information itself um, could be dangerous to be released... I'm, again, not imagining a central authority to therefore respond to that, but rather trying to help individual scientists be more responsible by understanding this type of danger and sharing, you know, best principles and practices for their lab in terms of should they have an internal committee that looks at things if they're in a dangerous area and tries to work out, you know, whether to proceed or not.
1: In terms of international coordination, how sort of optimistic are you that the sort of good old Westphalian system of, you know, states protecting their own interests and doing their own things and being sovereign is going to help us in all this or whether there is going to be a need for some sort of really radical shake-up in terms of where power and international institutions lies. Because a lot of the things you're talking about here are things that not only need to be funded globally but kind of need to be coordinated globally.
2: Yeah, it, it... Look, the kind of separation of humanity into a couple of hundred sovereign states does make a lot of this harder because existential risk is fundamentally, a, I guess, a global public bad, and the uh, the protection from it is a global public good. Um, so, for example, the UK has about 1% of the world's population, and uh, but if we were to develop some technology that, that led to an existential catastrophe, effectively, you know... Uh, only one percent of the harm of that would be felt by our citizens, and so we'd expect to undervalue it, the protection from it, by about a factor of a hundred, and other countries would similarly be undervaluing it. E- even something as big as as China, you know, still only has about a sixth of the world's population. Uh, so, that does cause a, a tragedy of the commons type problem, which we need to unite together in order to. Uh, to say, okay, we'll go forward if you do, and so on, and, and build these treaties. Uh, that can be difficult if some of the countries are playing hardball on it or just have, you know, ultimately irrational response to it. But we have, you know, made some progress with that in the past, and there have been various bilateral and multilateral treaties on nuclear weapons, for example, um, and the establishment of things like the Bioweapons Convention. So it shows that even in this this current system, we do have some capacity to develop these multilateral treaties that are ultimately in all of our best interests. But there are a lot of frictions to doing it, and uh, it's very slow and cumbersome, and we, I think, often miss a lot of win-win opportunities. Uh, So I think it is going to be a very hard road, and we may need some changes in our international institutions. I'm open to possibilities from very incrementalist you know, ways forward. Um, how can we get, say, current UN agencies to do more on, on these issues of existential risk? And also to uh, more radical approaches. It was in the wake of World War II, and in fact, you know, this, the entrance into this, this period I call the precipice, that we developed the, the current international regime. And uh, maybe with this realisation that climate change is another existential risk and that there's more coming down the pipe and that we need to be able to respond to them much more quickly and, uh, than we have been able to, uh, maybe it's, uh, it's time to develop new institutions. Uh, but I don't know much about how to do that. And uh, I just noticed that uh, on this historical scale, if we really are perhaps living at one of the most important times that there has been or, or will be, that if, if anything calls for taking seriously the possibility of of new global institutions. uh, This could be it.
1: Toby Ord, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't don't feel you have to review it. And equally if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.
0: This week, The Spectator will surpass the 100,000 subscribers mark for the first time in its long history. Subscribe today and you could be our 100,000 subscriber. If you are, you'll win a prize worth £5,000, including a year's supply of Paul Roger champagne and tickets to our famous summer party covid guidelines allowing but also send all new subscribers this week a commemorative tote bag subscribe today and you can get your first month free at www.spectator.co.uk forward slash milestone